0: Back in, listeners, to another wonderful episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We have a great treat for you today. Joining us, we have Doug DeVita, who is the playwright of a new work, Fable, which is having its premiere late September, early October here in New York City. And when I tell you that it's a treat that we have him here, Just wait till you hear about what play, uh, what this play is about. I'm so excited to share this with you listeners. But with that, Doug, welcome to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you, Andrew. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to just dive right into this play. The minute it came across, I wish I could say the minute it came across my desk, you know, the olden days, but the minute it came across my email, as I was looking through the list of guests, and your your little blurb came up and I saw what it was about. I was like, oh my gosh, this, for sure, this one. Because it's it's the story of one of my favorite musicals. And so now that I've given a vague setup about it, <laughs> could you please tell us a little bit about the show Fable?
1: Sure. Fable is subtitled A Fable About a Musical Fable. And basically, it's about the creation of the musical Gypsy, which had the subtitle, A Musical Fable, for a very specific reason. And that specific reason is what I'm exploring in this script, remembering that it is called Fable. <laughs> and June Havoc, who in the musical is played by two actresses, Baby June and Dainty June, and she disappears at the, at the end of the first act. June herself was... How do we put this nicely? You can't. She hated the show. She hated the way she was portrayed. She resented that people were making money off what she considered lies about her life. She even tried to get the show stopped.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: She tried to get it closed out of town, and it was you know quite a quite a tense situation for everyone involved, including her sister Gypsy Rose Lee, who whose memoir the the musical is based on. So how they, and she refused to sign the contract, allowing them to use her name. So that's what the setup in the situation in the play is. How it was all resolved was that she got them to give the show the the title, um, a musical fable, so that hopefully people would realize that there's nothing true on that stage. Of course, it didn't work. Everyone thinks that that is really what happened but the, nonetheless that's how it got the subtitle was was uh, june havoc said i will sign this if you give it this subtitle and that's what happened and so i've called it fable a fable about a musical fable i mean it just
0: seemed like obvious to me to do that that is amazing i just i i love a, a good play about like the background story of a show it always just it, it tickles me especially when there's so much drama behind it and i feel like at this this period, I want to say in entertainment, there is so much drama that exists that were yeah. explored into it, you know. Well, this was
1: you know, 64 years ago and there was a lot of drama going on. But no, I've I've taken I've taken what I what I know, what I've read in all the various books about the show, about Gypsy Rose Lee. I've read, I mean, I've read her book, I've read all the books about her, I've read June's both of June's books, Early Havoc and More Havoc. I've spoken to a few people who were actually there when it was all going on. I'm very good friends with Lane Bradbury, who created the role of Dainty June. And I'm friends with, her name is Strelitz now, but I'm friends with Jacqueline Mayrow Strelitz, who was the baby June. So I got some good information from them. Although Lane doesn't really remember that much. She, She went into the show when it was already out of town in Philadelphia. She replaced somebody else in the role. So what she really remembers is just being thrown into this situation and just trying to keep her head above water. But, you know, I got some good stuff from her and a lot of stuff, as I said, I just made up because it's a fable. And the the structure is that, well, what started it was I had a conversation with June Havoc on the phone once. Um, I was the marketing director for a theater company that June, she was on the board. And she would call every now and then. We didn't have any set receptionist. I mean, the phone rang. If no one, you, you know, you picked up and you answered. And I happened to pick up the phone the day, this day that she was calling. And it was the, it was the afternoon that the City Center Encore's production was opening for that summer run. And she was in a mood. She just, she was going to talk to whoever picked up the phone, and it happened to be me. And she was not happy about this upcoming production. They're they're reviving that musical again. They <laughs> always revive that musical when there's a big enough star desperate enough to play mother. And she just went on and on. And I let her talk. I just thought she needed, you know, she was 90. How old was that? She was 90 something at that point, 95, maybe, 96, I forget how old, 91, whatever she was. And she was, and I let her talk. But I really realized actually having spoken to her what that show meant to her and and how even, you know, 50 years later, it just rankled her that she was not represented the way she wanted to be. And it's living on. I mean, when it first opened, nobody realized it would or even thought it would have five Broadway revivals and two films and London productions and innumerable tours. And I thought, that's interesting. I could probably write something about that because it goes right into my wheelhouse. I love writing about anything theatrical, first of all. But my main, my main thrust as a writer is I, I write about mothers, martinis, misfits, and death. And so this kind of had all of that. Well, in this case, it's Scotch. Gypsy was herself was a known Scotch drinker, so I've worked that in, of course. But it just seemed to to be something I I wanted to write, and I wanted to tell. I mean, I'm not really telling her side of the story because, as I said, I'm making a lot of it up. But I am giving her a position on it, and as I, and it takes place that day, it takes place the day of the phone call, or actually it takes place on the opening night of that production. And she's just, she's in a tizzy, she's 97 years old, however she was, and it's all in her memory. So she's reliving things. And I have three actresses playing her. I have the older 97 year old June. I have the 40 something year old June during the time of the production. And I have a child. Who is doesn't speak but dances and sings in her memory, and she sometimes will talk to the child. She talks to her mother Rose, and then Rose will turn into Ethel Merman, and it and I've got Arthur Lawrence and Jerry Robbins, and of course Gypsy herself. It just it people seem to like it. I guess I don't know. We had a Zoom reading in October of twenty, which went very well. We did an in person reading last May. That went, that was what convinced Emily Dupre to produce it, to put it on the development track. So we've been working on it for nearly a year, and we're starting the, we're starting the real stuff now, the real work now. We're starting the fundraising, we're starting the the publicity on it. We're doing the it, the, the script was published in uh, November of twenty one, I think. Yeah, subsequently revived, revised after the reading last May, which was then republished. That's the script we're using, and the I'm hearing that the script is going into the drama bookshop. I have I have one title there now. I'm hearing that fable is going in. I but I do know that on June 6th, there's going to be an event around Fable there where snippets of the show, about 20 minutes scenes will be will be read. there'll be a Q and a. I'll do a signing, and it should be fun. I can't talk too much about it because you know all the details have not been locked down but i do know it's on tuesday june 6th and we do have as i said lane bradbury is a friend of mine and she's going to do she's going to read the older june at the at that that night so she will be there reading the 97 year old version of the role she created in 1959 when she was years old and I think that's a, a kind of nice bookend. She's not going to to play the role eventually. I don't think this is a, a one night only thing. But I think it's a very special a special uh, thing to have her there because there's that piece of history with the show. This living history for, of the show will be there reading the role. So because she worked with June again, she uh, and she actually I don't think she met June during the run of Gypsy, but she did know her from the actor Studio. And June has a play called Marathon 33, which is about her experiences in the marathons in the 30s. And Lane was in that show. It ran on Broadway for about six weeks in in the mid-60s. And I've incorporated June's marathon experiences into the script. So she did seven marathons in the 30s, and I believe she still holds the record or dancing the longest, the, the most number of hours, which is something like four or five, four or 5,000 hours on her feet, which is roughly four months, four or five months, 24-7 with like 15 minute breaks every two or three hours. They wow. were And they I'm were, sure it was back then, it would be in heels too. I'm not, I, she talked about what she wore. Uh, I don't remember what kind of shoes she wore, honestly. I do know that it was vicious. And when she, her first marathon, people were doing everything they could to get the newbies, which she was, off the floor. And somebody told her that it was a lot, a lot easier if she taped coins to her heels and the balls of her feet, which she did, which was disastrous. I mean, it just it, it was it was a way to sabotage. But she didn't know that. And when they found out that this person had done this to her, they disqualified her. And June went on, and she didn't win that marathon. But she, I think, she was like the second, the, the next to last one down. I'm not sure if she wore heels, heels or not. But it was a, a, a grueling. But it was a way to eat. It was a way to have a roof over your head for as long as you could hold out. It was the depression. Yeah. You know, wasn't Vaudeville was dead. She wasn't getting hired anywhere and it was considered a show. So she did seven of them. And of course, Gypsy looked down on her for that. And June looked down on Gypsy for stripping. So, you know, there's this, this sibling rivalry there that's just delicious.
0: Wow. All the things like I didn't know. This is amazing. So going back to Fable, this play and you being the playwright it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's on the track, it's moving on down the road. So what has it been like developing it and putting it all together, hearing your word said and all that?
1: Oh, it's pure torture. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been working on this script on and off since not immediately after that conversation, but like maybe like within a year I started it. So I would say since 2009 and I, I didn't, have a handle on it. I just knew it was a story I wanted to tell, but I didn't know how I wanted to tell it. And I fumbled with it for a number of years. And I started, I would put it away. Was it going to be a comedy? Was it going to be pure drama? What What was I, I didn't know. And I kept trying things, you know, it's like any show that I start. Then I brought it into a class I was taking with Karen Hartman. And she's a terrific playwright and a terrific, uh, she runs terrific workshops and she's very inspiring. And she she took me aside and she gave me the best pieces of advice I'd, I'd ever received. And she said, I want you to stop with this script. I want you to put it aside because you're doing what you do with everything in the beginning. You're just going for jokes. You're just going for laugh lines. Stop it. And I couldn't even be shocked because everything she said I knew on some level. And I thought she was right. I said, I want you to put it aside. I want you to just think about it, but really think about what it is that June wants. What is it that Gypsy wants? What is it the mother wants? What is it? And find the through line on that. And I put it aside for a year before I finally got the, uh, and by then June had died. And I thought, ah, marathons, memories. She, what does she want? She wants to control her own narrative.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What is Gypsy? Gypsy wants to control her own narrative. June wants to tell the truth. Gypsy doesn't give a shit about the truth. What does Rose want? She wants to control the narrative. Every single person in this show, Jerry Robbins, Arthur Lawrence, Ethel Merman, Gypsy Rose Lee, June, they all want to control their own narratives. And that's what propelled me through and then of course there's the whole mother thing which is probably i think why most people love gypsy because you know we all have things about our mothers whether we love them or loathe them we're all mothers are loaded and i think that's what it, what everybody loves about gypsy is because she is the monster mother of all time she is everybody's mother and for me, I always identified with June from the time, first time I saw the show when I was a, a child and I saw the movie and then I saw the Lansbury production in 1974. June always fascinated me because she got away. She got away from the mother and she did it on her own. Trust me, I didn't realize this at the time. It took years of therapy a therapy for me to get there. So there's that aspect of it that, that just fascinated me. But once I got that, it's memory play and this is what they all want. Then I, I was able to breeze through a draft, took it into another class with Rogelio Martinez at Playwrights Horizons, who was very, I mean, he was very sharp and gave me great guidance. And then I took it into one more class with Eric Webb, who is a, he's, he's a brilliant dramaturge. And that's where it found its final shape. So those three people, Karen, Rogelio, and, and Eric, really helped me shape and put this show together. And I wouldn't have done it, been able to do it without them. They're they're all three of them are just they're, they're such great inspirations. And they're not afraid to kick me in the ass, which I think all playwrights need to be kicked in the ass because we fall in love with our words. You know, you know that, you know that the, the famous saying you have to kill your darlings. You know it's hard, but you really do. And 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 I'm not going to say they make it easy, but it's they make you realize, yeah, you got to kill that darling.
0: It's the honesty you need to hear to get to the next best thing, rather than yeah. the what you want, what you want to hear that that keeps you where you're at. I I want to ask, is there a message or thought you're hoping the audiences will take away from Fable? That's a hard question,
1: and I'm never and I'm actually looking at my notes now because I did answer it. I guess it goes back to control issues. And that, you know, we we cannot, we cannot control how other people look at, view or share our own personal narratives, but we do know our own stories. And we should believe in our own stories enough so that we can control the way we tell them. And put them out into the world and be comfortable putting our stories out into the world. What happens once they're out there, we have no control over. So just let it go. And that's actually something that that I have used shamelessly used Ethel Merman as you know pretty much the butt of jokes throughout the show because she was famous for being Merman, but she's the one who gets this point across at the end. She's the one who pulls it all together and gives June the kick in the ass that she needs, which is just that you know your own story. So what the I think I think I think she I have her say. You know what you did. So who the, you know, why the fuck should you care what they think or something like that? And I guess that's what I want people. And I want them to be entertained. I mean, I I want obviously people who know Gypsy, who know who these people are. I'm hoping they come to see it. I'm hoping they enjoy it. I'm pretty sure that they're going to pick it apart because it doesn't play into their fantasies of what of what they think Gypsy was. That's part of the game. But I also hope that people who have no idea or just a passing knowledge of who June was, who Gypsy was, who Ethel was, who what the show is. I hope that they come to see it and they're entertained by it and they get the message whether they they follow up on who these people were or not but that they buy into the story, they follow them along on their journey. And that they can recognize that as as big as these characters are, and as large as their lives were, that their stories are universal and they're recognizably human. That's what I'm trying, and that's what I'm hoping people take away from this from the show when they see it. And I hope they laugh. I mean, I love to make
0: people laugh. Yes, but uh, that is a perfect that is a perfect lead in to my final question for the first part of this interview, which is, who do you hope have access to the show?
1: Well, you know, everyone always likes to say, well, everyone. <laughs> but as I said, people who don't know who these people are, I'm hoping that we can, and this is the politically correct answer, but it's also true. I'm hoping that we can get some school groups in, that we can get some 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 students and, and, and kids and teenagers who theater is not part of their life at all and get them in to see it so that maybe it will change one or two or maybe five people's lives and inspire them to either realize that this is this is what they're meant to do, or start a love for going to the theater, or just open their minds to different ways of looking at things. That, you know, I'm hoping we can do some school groups.
0: Well, I want to continue to give our audience a chance for them to get to know you a little bit better. I want to ask you what inspires you, what shows, playwrights, composers, what uh, inspire you, or do you love even?
1: Yeah, it's a cliche at this point, but of course, Sondheim. You know, he's is just. Uh, I mean, I've done his. I've done his work. I, I, I've I've directed a production of Into the Woods, and he's evil. That score is just evil. I was so glad I wasn't in it. But I was in A Little Night Music. Uh, I played Henrik in in that in a production of, of A Little Night Music. And let me tell you something, that trio, that that uh, <laughs> you're constantly counting and playing the cello at the same time. I should hate him. But but no, I loved I loved that. That was just two wonderful experiences for me. And of course, seeing the original Sweeney Todd and seeing the original Into the Woods and Queenie was the first original uh, Sondheim show I saw. But I also love Julie Stein, obviously. Uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein, Lerner and Lowe. In, in terms of musicals, um, I'm old school in my musical taste because I'm old. <laughs> but but in terms of like other other influences and what I I mean, I love Tom Stoppard. Mm-hmm. I love Edward Albee. Huge influence on me. Stephen Adley Guirgis, I mean, the guy's a genius. We had seen... Uh, between Riverside and Crazy out at Steppenwolf a f- few years ago and loved it. And when they were doing this current revival, which just closed, we had to go see it. And again, just blown away by his work. And I am I also like Neil Simon. I mean, I think there's a lot of he's he's underrated because he's so quick with the jokes. But as Karen Hartman said to me about the jokes, there's something painful underneath them. And that's what I need. you need to do. And there is. And then I'm also very, very influenced by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Mm-hmm. I think that, I don't think there are any better book writer, lyric writer team than them. They're, they're, their shows are just so witty and so funny and so smart and underrated. Um, so they're big influences on me. And, and jumping a little bit ahead again, answering one another one of your questions, uh, side from between riverside and crazy if you haven't seen and this is not just to you this is to everybody listening if you haven't seen leopoldstadt get to the, the the theater and and see it extraordinary and it's it's just extraordinary breathtaking and very timely very i mean you, you you're watching it thinking oh my god What's coming down the pike for these people, and then you realize if we're not careful, it's coming down the pike for us. It's just it's just a beautiful and it's so beautifully performed.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everything about it. It was, it was one of those shows where I just sat there and and I didn't think about time. I didn't think about comfort. I didn't I was just so wrapped up in it and almost bouncing in my seat because I was so
0: excited by it. Well, with that, what is your favorite part about working in the theater? Well, do you want me to lie, and get <laughs> the that everyone
1: wants to hear, or do you want me to be completely true?
0: Truthful? I mean, you could tell you the one as long. If you leave with money, I know immediately that's going to be a lie. No well, one to buy that. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's the money.
0: Um, but
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, there are so many things about working in theater that I like. I mean, the truthful answer is that being it being part of a world that when which we're encouraged to tell our stories that, that lives and dies by sharing and telling stories i like to tell stories i like to talk i like my characters to talk the other truthful part about it is is as a writer i like the solitude you know i mean eventually i do work with other people as we're shaping as we're rehearsing as and that's fine and that's fun having worked in advertising for for many years i'm used to working with other people and getting ideas and and feeding off each other it's great but when i'm actually writing and i'm alone in this room with nobody bothering me but the dog i'm very 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 happy i'm a, you know i'm a curmudgeon at heart
0: there's no shame in that but now that leads me to my favorite question to ask which is what is your favorite theater memory
1: I my major in college was graphic design and advertising and I spent 20 years in the industry when I was in when I was in art school we had to do a, a pen and ink poster and that was when Sweeney Todd had just opened so I did a full-page New York Times ad in pen and ink for the show and I sent it backstage for the cast to autograph. And they all did, including Lansbury. And when I went to pick it up after the performance, I didn't, you know, I didn't bother anybody. I just thought, sent it, and I'll pick it up. Well, she's coming off the elevator as I'm picking up the poster, and she stops and she looks at me. She said, "Oh, you're the one who did that." And I said, "Yes." It was, oh, it's marvelous work, darling, marvelous. Thank you. I, I enjoyed looking at it, or whatever. And then she got into her car and went away. Um, you know, nineteen-year-old, you know, nineteen-year-old little gay boy going crazy see because Angela Lansbury stopped and talked to him flash forward three years 1982 right before the Showtime version is premiering I'm in Bloomingdale's and I'm going through a sale sale bin of sweaters and there's this woman next to me and we're just rooting through rooting through rooting through we both grab the same sweater at the same time and it's Lansbury and she looks at me and I look at her and she goes I know you don't I and I said Well, we met briefly once backstage at Sweeney Todd. Yes, you did that poster. You did that pen and ink poster. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, uh, I I couldn't believe that she remembered that, like this not even minute-long meeting. And she remembered the poster. She remembered me. And she asked how I was doing. And she wished me well on my career. And then she gave me the sweater. I mean, I bought it. But, I mean, she let me take it. It (laughs) so i think that's my favorite theater memory of all I, I have many but that was just
0: incredible oh my god like that is incredible
1: yeah she's just you know i've always <sighs> liked her and that just made her a total goddess to me after that
0: that's amazing thank you for sharing that memory
1: Thanks. I it's a good one. I I I think about it, and it makes me very happy to think about that she remembered me from three and a half years later. You know,
0: are there any other productions or projects that you have coming on the pipeline that we might be able to plug?
1: Sure, as I said, Emily Dupre is she's a godsend. She fell in love with Fable. She was part of the reading in May and she has decided to put it on the developmental course that we're now on and we're Zooming toward production. There's another one of my scripts that was actually also just published last month that she has fallen in love with. It's called Philly's Trilogy. And we actually did a a reading of of the, the revised published version last night, a private Zoom reading. And now that is pretty much, well, I'm an airline brat. My father worked for Pan Am, so I tend to talk in airline language. And while Fable is now on the runway getting to take off for the first leg of its journey, Philly's at the gate, and that's going to be coming up next. Last night's reading went really well. I shouldn't admit this, but it actually plays better than it reads. I was astounded. I also had a great cast. So that's that, that's next. We're gonna be doing probably doing readings of that and putting that right in, you know, right behind Fable. I've been commissioned to adapt an independent filmmaker, this guy, PJ Leonard. He has his he's done wonderful short films and full-length films. He has a short piece about his experiences as an as an alcoholic, as a young Wall Street guy in the 80s. It's a very short film, it's like seven, eight minutes but he wants it adapted into a stage version for himself. So it'll be like an, an hour, an hour and 20 minute piece. So I'm, I'm adapting that for PJ. We're doing some readings of that coming up next month and a production of that also in the fall, my fall is going to be very busy. There's also, I have a play called all the King's horses, which is about a young woman's experiences as an egg donor. And. Out of the blue, I got a request from somebody in Latvia to read the script, and after vetting them in the company, I said sure. I let them. I sent them a perusal copy, and the upshot of it is they they're translating it into Latvian for a production in November in Riga. So those those are all coming up, and it's all this year. It's going to be a very busy year for me, and I'm excited. I mean, uh, it's 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 I got a lot of things to juggle.
0: Yeah, I mean that's incredible. <laughs> I'm I'm so excited for you, and I look forward to. I, I wrote all of these these works down because I'm like, okay, I gotta go check out this. Okay, I gotta go check out that. I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for a good play, and oh. you have hooked me on all of this okay. so far. Uh, the fact that Fable, I think you said was published, I was like, okay, like game on. Yeah, Let's I Fable is
1: published by Next Stage Press, which is a small independent boutique publisher um run by gene cato and he is fabulous he's one of the the nicest people in the business um he's he's taken four of my works he's fable uh as i said philly's trilogy was just published um the fierce urgency of now was the was that the first thing of mine? yeah that was the first thing of money published and that's the one that's constantly in the drama bookstore um they they keep uh, apparently they they keep selling it and ordering more copies so i'm not going to say no (laughs) And, and I go into the city, and I mean, I live in New Jersey now, so I go into the city to sign them. Um, and because, uh, you know, that puts them up in the front of the store. Um, and he also published my script for a bizarre comedy I wrote called Nell Dash The Gruesomely Merry Adventures of an Irrepressibly Sensible Capitalist with a Vengeance. And it's a mashup of Jane Austen and Charles Dickens and Bertolt Brecht and Sweeney Ta. I mean, they're all happening in London at the same time. So um, so he's published those. I believe he may be interested in all the King's Horses after the production in Riga. I'm not sure, but I, I we have sort of talked about that.
0: Speaking of which, my final question is, if our listeners want to get more information about Fable, maybe they want to get more information about you, they want to reach out to you, how can they do so? You can find my work on Next Stage Press if you're
1: interested, uh, nextstagepress.com. You can also, I mean, I have a website, all one word, DougDeVitaPlays.com. Look at it on your computer, not on your phone, because the mobile site's a fucking mess. Pardon my language. I Actually, I'm going to be working with people to optimize it for, for mobile, because right now the mobile doesn't really work. And then I've got Facebook pages for individual plays. I've got Facebook pages for Fable, Philly. Nell Dash, Fierce, and another play of mine called Goddess of the Hunt, which hasn't been getting much traction, but it's another one I'm going to be pushing, hopefully soon.
0: Well, Doug, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. This has been so wonderful, and your show truly sounds amazing. I cannot wait to to see it, really. I will be buying my tickets as soon as they go on sale, so Uh, thank you you again. My guest today has been the playwright Doug DeVita, whose newest work, Fable, is premiering here in New York City late September, early October. So stay tuned to Sage Whisper. As soon as we know, you're going to know. But if you'd like to hear some snippets from it, there's a special event happening at the Drama Bookshop here in New York City on Tuesday, June 6th. So you can find your way here to the city. Check that out. We're certainly going to do our best to make that there because we want to hear some snippets from this exciting play. There's also two ways to get a hold of Doug and his work. Check out nextstagepress.com where his work is published. He's got some great shows that I know I'm going to be getting a hold of and reading in the next few days. And you can also check out his website, DougDeVitaPlays.com. And there you can actually reach out to him. Maybe you've got some questions or, hey, maybe you actually wanted to do one of his plays. You're in a position to put on one of his shows. Let's keep the good stuff going for him. Make sure you take that information down. We're going to have all of it posted on our episode description as well as on our social media. But in the meantime, we'll see you on Tuesday, June 6th or in the fall to see Fable. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater in a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town.